Hey, welcome back to the Reframe Podcast, a podcast all about life, faith, and following Jesus. Today, we are going to talk about why people have a hard time putting their faith and trust in God. Why is God real, uh, and why do people not believe? And so today, uh, I have Pastor Rick, uh, who is our pastor of spiritual formation and leadership development with us today, and we are going to tackle that one question, why do people not believe in God? And so Pastor Rick, uh, in our conversation before we started uh, recording today, you were mentioning how uh, ultimately the issue of believing or not believing in God comes down to faith. Can you unpack that for us today? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists, and I don't think you can prove that he doesn't exist. You know, it, it ultimately comes to faith. So when you're looking at evidence for or against the existence of God, I guess what you're looking for are logical supports uh, for the faith that you believe in. But, um, you know, Jesus even said that if a man rose from the dead and spoke to, uh, this is the story of Lazarus and the rich man that died, and he tells that story, and the rich man is saying, hey, can you send somebody back to warn my brothers about this? And Jesus said, hey, even if a man rose from the dead, uh, they wouldn't necessarily believe. And then he said, you have Moses and the prophets, they have Moses and the prophets, let them read them. So he was taking them back to the written scripture, uh, which is going to, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that, that generates a faith to believe, but it's not, it's not going to be proof. And even if somebody sees something like, say, a resurrection, uh, they're they can easily dismiss it. They can second guess it after it's happened. You know all of those kinds of things. So, at the end of the day, it really is about faith. But that being said, it's important I think to have some uh, ideas of how we wrestle with the hard questions in life, and does that fit into our worldview uh, of a God? Hmm. I think that's really important to to conclude that it is a faith claim. Uh, and there's one thing that uh, you okay, that's the end of the discussion. I guess we're done. <laughs> end of the right? discussion. Yeah. <laughs> it's over. Done. It's a faith claim. So you either believe it or you don't. Yeah. In a recent poll that I took, the number one answer as to why people don't believe in God uh, is because of evil and suffering. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had this response come from a lot of people who would say they believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, um, but I also had. Uh, an overwhelming amount of response from people uh, that would profess to not believe in God yeah. or uh, more or less be agnostic, yeah. uh, don't believe in any God. Uh, and their argument is, you can't say that God is good, which the entire story of the Bible is depicting God's goodness and love for humanity. Uh, but you can't say God is good because there's such evil and pain and suffering in our world. Yeah. Uh, why is that such a hang-up for people? Well, they have an idea that if God's, if there is a God and he's in control, he's going to get rid of all evil. He's, mm. he's going to have a perfect world. You know, the Bible itself doesn't shy away from that issue. Right from the very beginning, when the Bible tells its story, it introduces evil and says it's there. So it's not like the Bible's presenting this Pollyanna view of life that says, I'm perfect and the world's going to be perfect. And then life isn't perfect. Right. The Bible from the very beginning has said there's evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the third chapter, you've got the serpent tempting Adam and Eve, and you've got the whole 
history of evil. So the Bible itself acknowledges it. God acknowledges it. That is there. Um, and so when we look at suffering and pain in the world, uh, I think we have to ask the question, like, what's the source of that? Hmm. Um, you know, we, people blame God. We, you know, we talk about uh, these, um, these uh, disasters that happen in the world, and they're like a God event. But you know, who says God's the one that did that? You know, we, right. we live in a broken world. So part, part of the classic answer is that, yes, God did create the world in a paradise state, but sin came into the world. And as a result of that, uh, death came into the world, and so we live in a broken world. And God does not deny that. The whole purpose of the gospel is to rescue us from that brokenness. And so people are naturally, um, they're, they're given free will. People are allowed to make their own decisions. God doesn't force people to follow him or to believe in him. So some rapist goes out there and rapes a woman, and uh, God didn't make him do that. You know, he had a free will to go out and do the thing that he did, and it was evil that was driving that. Now, people would say, yeah, but where, do, where does evil come from? How can there be a God if there's evil in the world? But I would say, how can—who defines evil, and who defines good? Um, if we are products of evolution, is there really evil in the world, or is it not just survival of the fittest? That's a really good point. Yeah, so— Let's just say, hey, I killed you, so I need to survive. You have what I want, I'm going to take it. That's like the animal kingdom. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to steal a, a mother's babies and eat them because it needs to survive. And we don't see that as evil. We just see that as part of the animal kingdom. Well, if we're right. in the animal kingdom, but so we don't. We're different than the animals because we define good and evil. Well, where did that definition come from? And right. I think the presence of evil in the world has to indicate there's also a presence of God in the world. There isn't, because evil is not just a thing, it's a person. Now, this is experiential. As you had said, I've encountered evil, and I have seen uh, evil presences in my life, and I know that that whole realm is real because I've encountered it, and if that's real, then that tells me God has to be real as well, because there's not going to be a, a devil or a demon or a demonic figure in this world and not be God, um, you know, because of the devil was completely in charge, and and he is in a lot of ways, but if he was completely in charge, it would it'd be a whole different world than it is. Because the church has been salt and light. I mean, just think if the church were removed, what kind of evil would happen in this world and how things would unfold. Right? So people say, hey, if there's a God, why doesn't he take care of the evil? And, and I think what people have to understand is he is going to. But when God takes care of the evil in the world, he's going to do a thorough job. Yep. The Bible says he's, he's patient in his return because he's coming back again someday and evil mm -hmm. is going to be put away. But when he does it, he's going to do it thoroughly. And that means that people who have evil hearts who are not covered by the cleansing blood of Christ, uh, they're going to be in jeopardy as well. And, he, and he's just waiting, waiting for his church to do what we're supposed to do, which is proclaim the gospel so that people can come to faith in Jesus Christ and escape the destruction that's coming. But God will deal with evil, but when he deals with it, he's going to deal with it thoroughly, not, mm -hmm. not just in peace. You mentioned who defines good and evil, and I think yeah. that's a really good point, because if there is evil— there also should be good. Uh, logically, that makes sense. Um, and in Genesis, we see, like Genesis chapter 3, when we see uh, the depiction of the fall or sin entering the world and that brokenness entering and death and decay and destruction, as you mentioned, uh, the serpent comes. Uh, I think the question that sometimes we get uh, hung up on is, is who created evil? Um, but in my experience of what I've read in the Bible and what I've 
studied outside of the Bible is we don't really know. It's a mm. mystery. Because mm-hmm. uh, the serpent was already there. Right. And the serpent represents evil and wickedness. Um, and if you look at the story, uh, the sin of humanity was us eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which essentially is depicting that we are choosing to determine what is good and what is evil for ourselves, uh, not God, as he intended it when he created the earth. And so I think one of the things that I come against often in conversations with people who don't believe in God is uh, our definition of justice. Because if there's evil and there's good, evil must be punished, right? Like we all have this innate longing for justice. And I mean, if you take a full naturalistic stance on life and it is survival of the fittest and just trying to make humanity as strong as we can possibly make it so that we can further our existence uh, into uh, the ages to come, uh, then there is no need for justice. There's no need for law. It's just create a strong a strong society of the strongest people. Uh, and I think that that also... Well, and that, that even goes into the idea of the weak need to be eliminated. Yeah. We, we can call the masses who, um, you know, so we'll use a, a bioengineering so that we make sure that we do genetic manipulation to have the best kind of children, to mm-hmm. not have any children born that have uh, any kind of deficiencies of any kind. In fact, we'll just abort those. We'll remove them. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's okay to do that if you have a humanistic point of view. It's about, it's about survival of the fittest. Right. And people would see that as a good thing if you're, if you're a humanist, sees a man's the center of everything, then it's all about keeping that all together and, and allowing the human race to go forward. You know? But if there's a moral law, if we say that's morally wrong, um, then that means there must be a moral law giver, right? because somebody had to define that. And I think that's, that's one of the classic arguments for God, that we have a sense of right, we have a sense of wrong, we have a sense of morality, we have a sense of justice. In fact, our whole justice system with punishing evil and so forth comes out of the Bible. I mean, the, our mm-hmm. framers, when they put together the Constitution, a lot of the ideas like three branches of government and all those kinds of things, that was derived from the Scripture. So there, that, that, that whole basis of morality was laid out in Scripture and has been a framework for uh, much of the world down through the centuries. Hmm. Wow. So coming back to... Uh, the problem of, of good and evil and justice and, and pain and suffering. Um, this is a, such an experiential topic. And so for a lot of people, we have experienced pain and we have experienced suffering. And so um, how do we deal with that? So if evil exists and there's good, but if God is all powerful and all loving, why doesn't he remove evil. And, and you mentioned he will someday right. on the judgment day, which is, you know, could be a whole nother podcast on its own. Right. Um, but why doesn't God remove it now? If he's loving, why would he allow us to suffer? Yeah. And I guess you could take that question right back to the cross. Why did mm-hmm. God allow his son to suffer? You know, and when Jesus was hanging on the cross, his mockers were saying to him, hey, if you're the son of God, take yourself down. He's getting what he deserves. And so, uh, Jesus himself underwent suffering. He learned obedience from the things that he suffered. 
uh, Scripture says, as he was growing up. So even God himself placed himself into this world and was subject to all of the pain and suffering that's in this world. And what God promises us is that he's going to be with us in it. I think that was the big, you know, and this is a controversial movie, but when The Shack was made, the book and the movie came out, one of the scenes that really struck me was when um, the father who lost his child was arguing with the God figure in that story and asking this very question, really struggling with why he allowed that to happen. And the thing that the God figure came back and said uh, uh, to him was that, and at this point it was being depicted as a woman, and uh, later on God appears to him as a man and says he had, he had daddy issues, and so he said, I appeared to you in this form because you wouldn't have even received me if I'd appeared to you as a man because of your father issues. So she said to him that when that was happening, when your daughter was being killed by this murderer, I was right there with you, and I was suffering, and I was crying, and, and so I, I didn't take you or the situation away, but I was in the middle of it. I was there with you, and that's what God promises us, mm. is that he'll be with us in it. I mean, the Hebrews chapter 11 talks about all these great men of faith, and it says some of them were sawn in two, and they were sewn up in animal skins and fed to wild beasts, and they were starving, and and men of great faith that the world's not even worthy of them. And so the Bible doesn't make this promise that we're going to be delivered from all of that, but it does promise that God's going to be with us in the middle of it. And in the movie, what happened is the father was given a vision of his daughter, who now was in the presence of God and was incredibly happy. And, and so I think we view life through this prism of time and space where we're locked into these 70 or 80 years that we live, but there's a dimensionality of life that is far beyond this. It's eternal and forever. And so this 70 or 80 years is minuscule compared to that. And I think it was Peter that said the, that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glories that will follow. Um, and so we have to view life from the bigger picture. In the immediate moment, it hurts and there's tremendous pain and, then, and we want it over now. But when we look at the bigger picture, there's something bigger going on here. And God is making provision for that. He'll be with us in the midst of what we're going through. And yes, there will be suffering and terrible pain. And he, he doesn't give a blanket promise that everybody's going to de- be delivered from it. But, it. but the psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. So I am walking through a valley. And it's like a valley of death, but it's really just the shadow of death. Because, even, because, because he says, You are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So God is with me in it. And even when I pass through the veil to the other side, uh, I'll discover that death is a shadow. The reality's been taken away, and that's the big story of the gospel. Not that God has come to make our lives here better, not that he's come to give us prosperity and that he's come to give us all the things we want and take away our pain and take away our suffering. It, it's, it's bigger than that. God has said, I've come to give you life, and that life is going to be eternal. And so his death and his resurrection was to secure for us eternal life in his presence forever. So I think God's a realist in the sense that this isn't a utopian world. It's a fallen world. And in, in this time, until the day comes that he makes that right, he is going to be with us in it, walk with us through it. Um, and I think that the presence of evil is, a, is really a, it's not a disproof of God, it's a proof of sin. It's the whole reason God came, to deliver us from yeah. that. Wow, that's really good. And I think, I think it's important, like you're, you're alluding to the fact that there, there's a bigger picture going on, and uh, the reason God came was to to bring restoration and reconciliation for a fallen world and a fallen humanity. And so, uh, essentially, what I'm hearing is God is 
a God who loves us, who draws near to us, not to take away our suffering, but to be with us in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think one of the best ways for me to understand that uh, on a personal level is uh, like a father figure. Like my dad is is an amazing man, and, and he loves our family so much. And I know that if he was able to, uh, he would you know make life perfect for us. Um, but in some of the hardest challenges that I've faced as a young man, my dad has not gone before me to eliminate all of the challenges and obstacles in life, but he's walked with me through it. Um, and one thing I've realized through pain and suffering is oftentimes on the other side of it, I realize how much God does love me as he walks with me through pain and suffering. Um, and I think that that's like probably one of the things that a lot of Christians misinterpret from the Bible and hold, I would say, like wrong belief mm-hmm. is that if I put my faith in Jesus, uh, I'm going to have health, wealth, and prosperity, right? Like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel right. is huge and it's rampant in North America, um, but it's not, it's not real. Like it's, it's us chalking up scripture to create some form of perfect utopia, so to speak, this paradise here on earth. Uh, and you mentioned how there's a bigger picture going on. Like, we're not just physical beings. We're not just locked into this physical world that we see and exist in. There's a much greater picture, um, a metaphysical world. Yeah, you know, the, you're just mentioning that that's a rampant belief. And, and I think part of the, we have, we have misrepresented the gospel, and maybe that's why people have wrong expectations, because they're told that very thing: come to Jesus, and you know, try him out; <laughs> he'll make your life better, kind of thing. Uh, but Jesus made it real clear. He said, "Unless you deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me, you cannot be my disciple." And he was emphatic about that. Picking a cross was not a nice emblem that you hang around your neck. It was a it was an emblem of execution. And in that honor-shame culture, that was the greatest shame that anybody could have. So people didn't look at Jesus on the cross and think, wow, what humility, what an incredible man. They, they were repelled by it because that was the greatest dishonor. And in an honor-shame culture, shame meant that he was not worthy of God. He's horrible, and they would run from that. So it wasn't looked on with any kind. We look on it now as so honorable. They did not look on it right. that way then. So when Jesus is saying to his disciples, you've got to take up your cross, He's saying you got to embrace shame, you got to embrace suffering, you have to actually be willing to die every day. So I'm not calling you to make your life really wonderful now. I'm calling you to die because there's something bigger at stake. And if you really die to self and do what I've commissioned you to do, which is to spread my message of eternal life to the world, um, then the kingdom is going to grow and people will come to Christ and have eternal life. And that, I, I thought, somehow... We minimize eternal life. Our physical life is so much more important to us than eternal life. So we look at that and say, yeah, that's coming, and that's going to be nice and everything, but what about right now? And I think people have to realize, no, this whole thing is here for the sake of what's coming in eternity. Yeah. And when we're there, we're going to realize this life didn't mean much, except it was, right. it was getting us ready for that day when we mm-hmm. step into eternity. That's what's going to mean everything. And, I, and somehow, maybe because the gospel hasn't been proclaimed uh, in an accurate way. Maybe it's been all about having your best life now and really living in prosperity and 
you know, and it, which is so egocentric, humanistic, and Jesus called us to a life of sacrifice. I mean, he was right up front with that. So it's not that the Bible is promising one thing and it's not keeping its promise. It's just that people have misinterpreted the Bible because it's calling us to die. Mm-hmm. That's a really good, good point of just the reality of what Jesus is calling us to. Um, but doesn't Jesus say he's calling us to a life of abundance and a life of everlasting? Sure. So what, is, what does Jesus mean? Because if he's saying that we're going to have this abundant life or this life everlasting, yeah. like what, what, if he's calling us to die, essentially, our physical death, but he's calling us into a, a spiritual reality of eternal life, yeah. what does he mean by an abundant life? Then? Well, you know, the, there's these crazy paradoxes in the Beatitudes. Jesus says, uh, blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. I mean, what kind of a paradox is that? And the word blessed means happy. Hey, you're happy when people cheat you and speak evil of you and all of this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's most definitely not what I feel when that happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm not feeling blessed. Right. I'm feeling really like, God, get me out of this. And you know what? The authors of the Bible felt the same way. I mean, the psalmist lamented, and, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's not like they were this uh, you know, unrealistic kind of person who they're going through suffering and saying, yay, I love it, thank you, Jesus, you know, like, like they're masochistic or something. They hated it, and we do too. I mean, I, when I have pain, I want out of it, and I've, I've walked with, with death, and I've walked through betrayal and suffering, and I hated every bit of it and wanted out of it. So it's not like we're denying that those are realities that happen in our lives, but God, you know, I'll give you a little preview of my sermon coming up, but uh, Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he, and this is interesting, because he's saying how blessed, how happy, how over-the-top happy is this person. And what's the key to that? He, he goes on and he says, and it, it's delighting in the law of the Lord. And then he describes what happiness is. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So that's the third verse of Psalm 1. And he's saying that that's what happiness is, and it was Graham Scroge, who was a commentator oh, over 100 years ago, who took that and defined what happiness is by the biblical definition of it. And he, took, he, he identified seven words in that third verse, and he talked about vitality. He shall be like a tree planted by living water. Tree is alive, so it's speaking of life, but, but life doesn't mean... Uh, that we're our hearts beating and our, we're pumping air in our lungs because everybody has that and yet not everybody's happy. Right. But it really means that you're really living. You're living while you're alive. I like John Bon Jovi's a humanist certainly and and uh, not a theologian, but I like his song "It's My Life" and in it he has this line. He says, "I want to live while I'm alive." And I think that that is um, the idea of vitality that we're living while we're we don't get to the end of our life and realize we never really lived. And then he goes on and he talks, I think the other word he uses is um, stability, uh, a tree firmly planted, its roots go down deep, which acknowledges that in that desert region there are going to be storms and the tree will naturally be pushed and could fall over unless its roots are deep, so there's stability, so happiness is about being stable. Uh, he go, he uh, identifies capacity, its, its roots are by streams of living water, so uh, Jerusalem was in a region that's much like Arizona, so very desert-like, and yet this tree is going to have sustenance because its roots are getting to the water underneath, so even if it doesn't rain, it's going to get water. 
And so God is going to give us what we need, and then the next thing is fertility, which yields its fruit. So happiness is about being fruitful. Mm. It's about a life that, that God created you for a reason. He made you, and he has a very specific purpose for you, and happiness is about walking in the center of what that is for your life. And then it talks about uh, streams of water, and then it says, which yields its fruit. So it's fruit in its season. So it's the right fruit at the right time, and its leaf does not wither. So there's, a, it, that it's, it's, um, there's faithfulness and steadfastness and stick to all the way through. You don't burn out or flame out. And then whatever he does, he prospers. He prospers, the, this individual. And Scroge says that that phrase encapsulates all of those. So when you put that all together, happiness means you're walking in the sweet spot of God's creation for you. God made you, Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created for good works which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. So God made you for a specific reason. He has specific purposes for you. And when you walk in the center of that calling, when you walk in the center of what you were intended to do, there's fulfillment and there's purpose. And Scripture says that's happiness. Hmm. So happiness is not tied to my circumstances. Human happiness is, you know, it's a, our word happiness comes from the root word hap, happenstance or happen. So right. if something good happens to me, I'm happy. And Scripture doesn't define it that way. Scripture defines happiness saying even in the midst of storms and trials and suffering, you were created for a purpose, and when you walk in the center of that purpose, that's happiness according to the Bible. So that's what the Bible promises us. It doesn't promise everything's going to be abundant and wonderful. Mm-hmm. There are some promises there that, you know, your land's going to prosper, it's going to grow, you're going to be, you know. There are some of those in the, in the prophets, but those were promises that were not given blanket to every human being. Those were given to Israel as a nation. Right. And I think you've got to make those distinctions, too. Is this a universal promise, or is this a promise that's directed not to an individual Jew, but to the nation of Israel as a whole. And so that's a whole other topic, but right. yeah. So. so even in the midst of suffering and pain and like enduring the hardships of this world, so pandemics or cancer and other forms of sickness, job loss, um, just like hardship that every human being faces. Yeah. You're saying the Bible promises us that God will be with us, and while we live with God, living out His purpose for our life, that is how we find real life and real fulfillment. Yep, exactly. I think you're right on. And uh, my be- one of my great friends, his name is Francil, lives in North Carolina. He got cancer, and I, I'll never forget it. He came to me and talked to me about it, and he said to me, Pastor, I've prayed, and I want to make sure I don't waste my cancer. Hmm. I, I want to use this to God's glory. And he didn't know if he was going to live or not. So, I mean, this guy's going through a real trial, but he decided to use that, and he held faith and confidence, and every time he was at the waiting office, getting chemo with the doctors, whatever, he was sharing the gospel of Jesus, and people would listen, because there's a man dying, maybe, but he's talking about the joy of the Lord, and, and many people were influenced for Christ because of what he did. Now, God healed him, and, you know, he's in remission today, and he's, he's survived it, but even if he hadn't, he was going to do that right until the end. So that was facing trials, not saying, God, get me out of it. But Lord, okay, I'm in this, and you're with me. Now, what are we going to do in this? And how, how do you want to use this? Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm sure you've experienced this, but I've gone through some deep hurts and betrayals. And when I've come out the other side of it, I was just doing this exercise this last fall. I was away for a day of prayer, and I was praying through some of the deep uh, hurts that have been done against me. And then I, and I thought about where I'm at now and the things the Lord has taught me. And I realized there were lessons that I learned 
in that crucible that I could not have learned any other way. And I don't ever want to go through that again. But the lesson I gained from it, now I come out the other side of that, and I'm thankful I learned that. And I guess that's part of what James said when he said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he didn't say, be joyful about the trial, but he's saying, be joyful about what's going to come out of the trial on the other side of that. And it's going to be, because you learn things in failure that you can never learn in success. Right. And sometimes God, and I can't remember the story, and I wish I could, but there's a story in the Bible where God intentionally led Israel into failure. Uh, one of the kings of Israel. He led him into failure. He did the will of God, and it ended up failing, and God did that intentionally because God wanted to teach him something in the failure that he couldn't learn in success. Wow. I think that's a word, especially for those of us who are really, really wrestling with this pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm I'm 23. I'll be 24 in August. Um, even though I, I've faced a ton of abuse and trauma in my childhood through foster care, um, this pandemic has been the hardest aspect of my adult life. Mm. And it has been so uncertain. It has been so, in a way, depressing and frustrating. Yet, I'm, I'm sitting here feeling filled with hope that, okay, what am I going to learn on the other side of this pandemic? Like, if God has something to teach us, in every season and in every trial, okay, I should be expectant that God is going to use this for his good. Mm -hmm. uh, and scripture says that. I mean, Paul says it, that God uses everything for his good. And that's, I mean, that's the bulk of what we've been talking about today, that right. even though there's evil, God is doing something good in the midst of it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the greatest example of that, as you mentioned, is the cross and what Jesus did. Uh, and as I'm sitting here listening to you talk about that, I realize. Yeah, there was no glory in dying for people, especially in an honor-shame culture. Mm -hmm. And now we look back on that story of Jesus dying for not just a person, but the world, all of humanity, so that we may know God again. I think that is the greatest form of humility and saving. No one expects to be saved by another person dying for them. Right. Right? Yeah. And I think... When we look at our world today, and this has been probably the hardest national thing we've gone through in a few decades, I think we realize, or should realize, that God is still with us, mm -hmm. and He can use this for His good, and real life is not found in our systems and our structures of America, it's found in the person of Jesus. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a good point. I mean, and, and I think America is being tested because we are in the business of being happy, right? Yep. And so, I mean, it's in our constitution. We hold these truths, certain truths be unalienable. Right. You know, the American we, dream. We're created by our, we're endowed with our creator with an in, certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's like our right as Americans to be happy and to pursue it. And that's all being uh, torn apart. Uh, there was a recent poll that came out that said Americans are more unhappy now than they've been in 50 years. Wow. And the World Happiness Report comes out every year and uses different metrics to, metrics to determine happiness, GDP, health, and things like that. There's six of them. And they polled 164 countries. America is number 19 in all of those countries, which is still pretty good, but we've dropped three years in a row. And this was before COVID-19. Now that we're with the highest unemployment we've ever had, like, like 
higher than the Great Depression. Mm. Uh, wow. Things are falling apart. We've got race riots. Uh, police forces are being yep. laid off or defunded, and it's causing the 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 uh, crime rate in New York has absolutely skyrocketed. Um, with murders and all, I mean, Americans are unhappy that's going on. And, and so we just think, where is God? And, and I think there's, this is gonna, probably going to sound really negative, but I, as I look at all of that that's going on and I think, what is happening, God? What are you doing in this? I know, and I love a lady named Jan Markell that I sometimes listen to. She says, things aren't falling apart. They're falling into place in the sense that God, mm. you know, can take all of this and can use it. And we know prophetically at the end of the age, and are we there or not yet? I don't know. But when the end of the age does come, things are going to get bad. I mean, the Bible tells us that. So it's, it's not some kind of a surprise. But I look at America sometimes, and I think this is a warning to the church. When I see uh, what's happened economically because of COVID-19, and then I look at the race riots and the division that's going on in our nation, uh, we've got a contested uh, presidential election coming up. And it's like no matter which side wins, the other side is g- going to oppose that, maybe to the point of civil violence. You know, there's yeah. such hatred and division in America, and evil is proliferating in this country at such an alarming rate. And I look at all that, and the thought that comes across my mind is Romans 1. You know, men did not acknowledge him as God but in, or give him thanks, but instead they made their own idols, they entered into debauchery, and it describes it, and then they do all these evil things, and it says, and they even give hearty approval to those who do it. And God's response in Romans 1 is that he turned them over to a reprobate mind. He just took his hands off, because he's saying, you don't want me, you're not interested in me being your God as a nation, fine, I'll take my hands off, because I'm not going to force you to love me, and you do your own thing if you want to do your own thing, but you'll enter into a cycle of self-destruction, because that's what sin does. You know, the destruction that's going on in the world right now uh, with these people that are burning cities down or people that are killing innocent people, and we could say, you know, why is God allowing it? God's not doing that. We're doing it to ourselves, and we're allowing it to happen. And I think it's just God taking his hands off and saying, if you don't want to be a country that follows me, then fine, do your own thing. But this is, this is where it's going to lead. It's where it always leads when people take God out of the equation. And so mm. I look at that and I think, all right, God, if that's what's going on, because what's happening? Why, I'm not asking uh, why this pandemic is occurring, because the Bible said there would be pestilences and, and diseases, but I'm asking, God, what can we as the church do in the midst of this? If, that, if we are in a Romans 1 kind of judgment where you're taking your hands off of America, we've been, the, God's people have been there before. Read the book of Jeremiah, mm. and yep. they were there. Yep. And what did Jeremiah do? He wept and he prayed and he preached and he proclaimed right until the day that they were taken captive by the Babylonians. And that's the call of the church. So it's, it's not our job as the church to try to raise up some political party and make things right politically. It's not our, you know, that's, that's, that's so narrow-minded in our thinking to think that we got to become a political arm to somehow move politics where it needs to go. No, we need to be a spiritual army and get out there and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Amen. and lead people to Christ. And so, uh, yeah, anyways, I'm rambling, but yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that's, a, that's a good point, and I think we'll wrap up with this. Uh, to sum up this, uh, what looks like a shotgun blast has gone off in the conversation <laughs> today, yeah. um, if you're listening to this and you're a Christian and you've never addressed uh, why you believe in God, or why other people might not. Um, one of the most common things you'll face is 
the question of evil and suffering. And we do have a God who draws near to us in suffering. And if you're listening to this and you think this is a bunch of mumbo jumbo and um, God can't be real and maybe you're in a philosophical camp or a scientific camp, uh, that'll probably be a conversation for another day mm. that Rick and I'll have. And, uh, but to address the problem of evil and suffering, which most people get hang up on, hung up on, um, there is a God who draws near to us in pain and in suffering, not to just eradicate all pain and all evil to make this some form of paradise. Uh, but I think because evil exists, the the hope and the message of Jesus is I am with you and you do not need to be afraid. Mm. Um, Amen. In the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the unrest and injustice in our own nation, um, Jesus is with us and he wants to be with you. And I think uh, if you were willing to sit and take a moment wherever you are and think of that fact that God is real and wants to be near you. I think there is some spiritual encounter that you very much so could have. And so as we wrap up today, uh, I hope this conversation challenged you. I hope it gave you more questions uh, because questions are not bad. Questions are good. And a lot of times uh, God does answer our questions. And so, uh, Tune in next time on the Reframe podcast where Pastor Rick and I are going to continue to talk about uh, why people have problems with following God and believing in his existence. Have a good one, and we will see you next time.